we have a far-right extreme uh, majority uh, on the Supreme Court. At no point in our lifetimes has the Supreme Court been so far out of step from where most of the country is. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This week, just days before a national election, the Republican-led Senate confirmed Amy Coney Barrett to be a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. The confirmation was rammed through in record time just four years after Republicans refused to give a hearing to a nominee from President Obama, Merrick Garland, because they said eight months before an election was too soon. The Supreme Court now has a 6-3 to conservative majority and is the most conservative court in nearly a century. We'll spend the hour discussing what the new conservative Supreme Court will mean. In the first half hour, we'll discuss the impact of the Supreme Court on women's issues, and we're joined by Lynn Paltrow, Executive Director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women. In the second half hour, we'll hear about the new Supreme Court's implications for civil liberties, LGBTQ people, immigrants, and others with Gita Schwartz, a senior attorney with the Center for Constitutional Rights. And finally, we'll talk with Vermont ACLU Executive Director James Lyle about how the new Supreme Court could affect Vermont. We'll begin with Lynn Paltrow of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women. Lynn Paltrow, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm happy to be here. Well, Amy Coney Barrett has just been sworn in uh, to the Supreme Court. What does the new configuration of the Supreme Court mean for reproductive rights for women? Well, um, you know, as people know by now, she's 48 years old. It's a lifetime appointment, and it's the third appointment uh, that has been made bringing the court definitively to uh, a rightward drift, shall we say. And the expectation is that she will be create a majority that will uh, do two things in terms of reproductive freedom, rights, and justice, that she is likely to uphold restrictions on abortion uh, and ultimately vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, how she does that could have significant impact on the personhood of women, of the people who can get pregnant. Um, but everybody who needs reproductive health care also needs health care. And the expectation is that she will provide the vote to get rid of the ACA, uh, to get rid of Obamacare, to dismantle it, uh, to take away the health care that whether you are pregnant or could get pregnant or need an abortion, you're going to need, and you're going to lose that protection uh, and protection uh, regarding coverage for pre-existing conditions. So it's it's pretty devastating um, if you're concerned or if you believe that the government has an obligation to protect your health. So how do you think this is going to go? Certainly, uh, reproductive rights advocates have been preparing for this moment. Um, what will it look like? I mean, um, abortion rights, is it going to be sort of revert to a state-by-state case, do you think? How do you see this going? Well, one of the interesting things about uh, her nomination and the conversation about its implications is that it's really focused just on abortion. 
Uh, and I want to answer your question, but I also want to point out that um, her position, uh, that she did an ad that really brought attention to her views on abortion. Uh, she signed an ad, I think, in 2006, in which she said she opposes abortion on demand. But the second part of that um, ad said, and defends uh, the right to life from fertilization to natural death. What that means isn't is that her uh, intention or uh, her commitment is to ending a, a right to abortion, a recognition of that fundamental right, but far more than that. Because if the end of that right is, is based on recognition of the right to life from fertilization, you can't add fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses to the Constitution without subtracting women, people, the people who can, and the people who can get pregnant. And what do I mean by that? Um, I'll tell you some stories. Here's a woman who uh, got to this nomination because of her deep Catholic religious beliefs, her firm anti-abortion beliefs, and she represents something that many people value, uh, and that is motherhood. So she's very proudly the mother of seven children, five that she birthed, two that she adopted. But there are a lot of women who, like her, don't understand what her nomination means. And I'm thinking of Amber Marlowe as a woman who, profoundly fundamentalist in her religious beliefs, profoundly anti-abortion, was pregnant with her seventh child. She ended up in a hospital that she had to deliver that she'd never been to before. And they decided that she needed cesarean surgery. And she knew her body. She delivered six babies vaginally. And she said no. The hospital, unbeknownst to her, without any notice to her, went to court and got an order asking uh, to be able to cut her open to protect the life of her unborn child. And the court actually granted the hospital custody before, after, and during labor of the baby and the right to cut her open. The, what happened was she was able to leave that hospital before the order was delivered to her. And she went to another hospital that respected patient rights, including women's rights and pregnant people's rights, and gave birth vaginally to a healthy baby. That woman who came with us to the March for, uh, for Abortion and Women's Lives in 2004, because she, she understood that the anti-abortion position based on a right to life from fertilization meant that as a pregnant person, she lost her rights to bodily autonomy, to um, medical decision-making, to just being a person who has fundamental rights. Uh, we can, I can tell many stories. Laura Pemberton also, very much from what I can tell, like Amy Coney Barrett, um, firmly anti-abortion, deep Christian faith, um, uh, was pregnant, I think, with her fifth child. Uh, and she had had her last child by cesarean. She knew how uh, disruptive and major that surgery was, how hard it would be to take care now of, of five babies recovering from surgery. So she didn't want to have another cesarean when it became known that uh, she was laboring at home to avoid a forced or coerced cesarean, a second cesarean, they actually got a court order based on the right to life from fertilization, sent a sheriff to her house, knocked on her door. She was in active labor. The sheriff took her into custody, put her in the back of an ambulance, strapped her legs together 
while again in active labor, took her to the hospital where lawyers were arguing about the right to life of the fetus. Uh, she was not allowed to have a lawyer. She was allowed to defend herself while they prepared her for the surgery. And the, uh, the belief was that she risked a uh, uterine rupture and killing the fetus if she didn't have the surgery if, uh, because she had had a previous cesarean. They performed the cesarean over her objections. When she brought a civil rights suit that said that for surgery, taking me into custody, strapping my legs together, denied me my religious freedom because part of my decision not to do that was based on my values and my religion. The court said, none of your rights mattered, only the rights of the right to life of the fetus. So to the dismay of women and mothers who share Amy Barrett's beliefs, they too are going to find that they may face significant loss of rights, uh, dignity, and health once she's in office, when, when she's serving on the court. So just to be clear, the stories that you're telling, these are state laws in which these w women reside that have these so-called personhood laws where a fetus is elevated to the level of a full person. That's a great question, and you would think that they would be in states that have laws that authorize this, but they're not in states that have laws that authorize this. These are individual actions taken by hospitals or uh, local uh, prosecutors, and they all occur in an emergency situation where it's very hard to have your due process, any kind of due process. Uh, and the, the, they happen in emergency proceedings in front of trial court judges with no informed lawyer for the woman. It doesn't matter that there's no law supporting it. it. It is allowed to happen based on misinterpretation of current law. And the, the, the cultural phenomenon of this idea of right to life from fertilization that Amy Coney Barrett could put into effect. So these cases are somewhat... Uh, uh, outliers. They don't happen every day, but they are the prediction. They are the description of what could happen if Roe is overturned, and especially if it's overturned because they're recognizing personhood uh, for the fertilized egg. Hmm. Talk a little bit about some of the racial disparities uh, as it pertains to reproductive rights. Is, are there two or more worlds when it comes to reproductive rights for people, women of color and white women? Um, there are two worlds for everything. Uh, and certainly reproductive health is one of them and rights. It's healthcare in general, um, looking at uh, who's been most impacted by COVID deaths or more disproportionately impacted. We know that um, uh, rates of maternal mortality are, uh, three times, sometimes four times higher for black women than for white women. Uh, and we also know, that, and let me put this in a context that brings it back to an earlier question, uh, which was, well, what's going to happen with abortion if Roe is overturned? You know, that we, we don't know how they're going to overturn it. I think the uh, anti-abortion politicians have used the state's rights argument, have used the state's rights argument, you should leave this to the states. If Roe is overturned, and Roe said that the Constitution protects, provides protection to women to make the decision to have an abortion. Um, if that's overturned, you could have a federal ban on abortion. 
one hopes that the federal legislature would not pass such a law and that we wouldn't have a president that signed it into law, but it's conceivable that it wouldn't be left to the states. And certainly if the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade is based on a recognition of separate rights for fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses, states would also be limited in their ability to protect women's right to have an abortion. But what I want to say about that, getting connecting those issues with how we see racism, which is what, you know, racial disparities is kind of a, a nice term for that. Um, we know historically that prohibitions don't work. And if you'll bear with me, we know that when alcohol was criminalized or uh, uh, banned in the United States, prohibited, people drank alcohol. Lots of people drank alcohol. Uh, people made their you know, livings and careers uh, on alcohol. We've outlawed certain drugs or criminalized certain drugs. People are using those drugs. It hasn't stopped them. And when abortion was criminalized before 1973, when Roe was decided, it was estimated that 200,000 to a million women each year had abortions anyway. Uh, what we know about pro prohibition laws is that they are not applied equally, that not everybody who uses drugs goes to jail and fills our prisons that are, that are contribute to mass incarceration. We know that laws that prohibit certain behaviors that humans engage in, they have sex, they use drugs, they need to control their, their bodies and their lives. Uh, those laws are enforced extraordinarily discriminatorily and they target the same communities that are discriminated against. They target black people, brown people, immigrants, and the poor white people. Uh, and we see in the enforcement currently, there have been hundreds of arrests, some of them uh, involving alleged illegal abortions, abortions outside of approved medical settings, even with Roe on the books, as well as uh, hundreds of arrests of women in relationship to their pregnancy. Pregnancy fell down a flight of stairs, pregnancy and used drugs, pregnancy and alcohol, mostly based on individual prosecutors just trying to make a name for themselves. Those have been uh, overwhelmingly targeting black and brown mothers. We know that the, uh, uh, the population of prisoners in this country are overwhelmingly black and brown people. Um, and uh, we can expect the same racist application of any prohibitions on limitations on access to abortion to play out the way they've always played out. Hmm. Um if you're just joining us, we're talking in this half hour with Lynn Paltrow. She is the executive director of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women. Um, Lynn, the, one of the cases that uh, you've highlighted is the story of Chelsea Becker in California. This is a young woman who has been charged with murder following the stillbirth of her child, and she's in jail right now, as I understand it. Can you explain? Just tell her story and explain how this could happen, that stillbirths and miscarriages could result in a murder charge. That's a big question, and uh, there are so many factors. Let's start with this. Um, we've had an anti-abortion movement in this country that has described abortion as murder, uh, as um, 
uh, a Holocaust worse than any in human history. And that description of abortion, just starting there, is a kind of defamation of the people who have those abortions. It's not just an attack or ideology about abortion separate from the bodies and lives of the approximately million women who have abortions every year. It's a defamation that says those people are murderers. Those people who have the capacity for pregnancy are committing murder, are committing a Holocaust worse than any we've seen in human history. This is the argument that's being made. And those who are making it should be held accountable for the defamation of women and who are overwhelmingly mothers. The vast majority of women who have abortions are already mothers. 84% of all women get pregnant and give birth by the time they're in their 40s. And so this is an attack on America's mothers. So the idea then uh, that if you have a stillbirth, it could be your fault and be described as murder it's not so shocking given the cultural context in which basically what women do is described that way. Um, as an aftermath of Roe and the anti-abortion movement, uh, 38 states have passed laws, feticide laws, um, and those are laws that make murder of a fetus or now fertilized egg murder, uh, a crime of murder. Those laws in almost every state were passed in the wake of an extraordinarily violent attack on a pregnant woman. And anti-abortion organizations and very often a Catholic church come in and say, we, can't, we have to recognize the loss of life of the fetus, not just the loss of the life of the woman. It would be uh, shameful to not have two murder charges. And it gets put on the books. So a termination of a pregnancy gets put on the books as a form of murder even in those states that absolutely make clear, now the laws were all passed with the pretense that they were gonna protect pregnant women and their future children from violence. Prosecutors then wait a little while and then use those laws against the women themselves. And that's what happened to Pervy Patel in Indiana. And it's now it's happening to uh, Chelsea Becker in California. She had a stillbirth. It's blamed without scientific basis on her use of uh, her dependency on methamphetamine. We know that methamphetamine does not cause stillbirths. I sometimes point out that if it actually were good at causing pregnancy losses, more women might be using it. Um, she's charged under California's murder of a human fetus law that was passed in 1970 after, in response to the fact that there had been a brutal attack on a pregnant woman uh, and providing a way of uh, creating an additional penalty for the loss, the causing the loss of fetal life. The statute itself says it can't be used uh, in any case where there has been the consent of the mother of the fetus. But a prosecutor in uh, Hanford, California, a very conservative community, um, is using her to try to get the courts to pass a law that the California legislature has refused to pass over and over and over again. California has refused to outlaw abortion. It has refused to respond to the issue, the health issue of pregnancy and drug use through the criminal law. They've considered it. They've rejected it. Uh, and even the person who wrote the feticide law, uh, we have an affidavit from him uh, from uh, the 19, uh, early 1990s in which he says, 
we were only passing a law to respond to violence against pregnant women. This was never meant to be used as a basis for arresting the woman herself. Nevertheless, uh, Chelsea Becker, uh, uh, NAPW, and a group of amazing lawyers are representing her. But this is something everybody needs to remember as we look to a future when abortion may be criminalized again. There's this idea, you watch TV, oh, you're going to get, you have a right to a speedy trial. Uh, you, you know, even if you're arrested, don't worry. Uh, you know, women aren't going to be arrested, but if they are, you have all these due process rights. We, we, you know, we are always so good to criminals. Ms. Becker was incarcerated, arrested last November. It will be a year that she's been sitting in jail for a non-existent crime, being held there uh, on $2 million bail, ignoring the rules for bail, which have to consider your indigency, your poverty, which the court has not done, while the COVID is moving its way through places like jails and prisons. So, to bring this back around to uh, she, she's not committed a crime and yet she's sitting there. Uh, the people who sponsored the ad that Amy Barrett signed were asked, uh, you know, do you think uh, that women should be, who have abortion should be criminalized? And their answer was not yet. And the not yet part means they want to reserve the right to possibly prosecute women who have abortions. So, and, and as a group called ReproAction uh, has documented doing, you know, face-to-face -face interviews with all sorts of legislators, as we have documented as well, increasingly those groups who oppose abortion are calling for the arrest of the women who have abortions. And also the healthcare providers, right? They have always uh, had provisions that, that, uh, threatened the healthcare providers with arrest. Um, uh, not for murder, though, um, uh, for violating uh, laws regulating abortion. And fortunately, really uh, vigorous defense of doctors and the providers of abortion have mostly prevented that from happening. Uh, one of the first people arrested was Dr. Kenneth Edelin after Roe v. Wade. He happened to be a black doctor. Uh, and was charged with murder for allegedly performing a, a later term abortion in a very um, uh, harrowing situation that he was eventually, uh, uh, it, it was actually Massachusetts and the charges were eventually dismissed or um, overturned. Uh, but the point is that they have always said we'll criminalize just the doctors. Now they're saying the nearly a million women a year, the 43, something like 40% of women who've had abortion, they're saying are people who should be in jail. So I know that there has been a steady stream of cases that have been teed up to advance towards the Supreme Court in the hopes of a moment just such as this, when it finally swung to a solid uh, anti-abortion majority. Do you happen to know what's next? What is the course, the the case that will we'll get to see the what this new Supreme Court majority uh, how they weigh in on reproductive rights? Well, I'm afraid that I'm I'm not the one to predict which of those. I mean, we have uh, challenges to 
laws in Indiana and Georgia, Louisiana, and by we, groups like the Center for Reproductive Rights, Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, uh, have been doing a phenomenal job of challenging those laws that threaten arrests of the doctors. And those are laws that are so-called, those so-called heartbeat laws that pushed uh, restrictions on abortions back to six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks. Uh, they are targeted restrictions on abortion provider laws that uh, we just recently, the Supreme Court struck down a law in Louisiana that would have required uh, physicians to, in order to provide abortion services, ha get um, have relationships, approved relationships with the local hospitals, none of which would provide those. And even though there was no health reason for them, uh, the court took that case, even though it was identical to another case, they take case they had taken the year before in Texas, they took it, they struck that law down, but there are several states that have similar laws. So there are any number of kinds of limitations on access to abortion that are in the pipeline uh, that could be the one. Uh, I sort of, bring us back to a different time when Roe v. Wade was it reached the Supreme Court, and that was a challenge to the Texas law criminalizing abortion. There were 13 other cases uh, from around the country in that pipeline challenging the restrictions on abortion, and it happened to be the Texas law that made its way to the Supreme Court first. Um, they have essentially followed that playbook and have uh, a huge number of cases that are waiting. What has gotten far less attention is what it means for the individual women who have abortions. Uh, the people who have abortions uh, are far more likely in uh, to, in 2020 to end up being arrested and go to jail than any before 1973, before we had mass incarceration and mass criminalization. So looking ahead and knowing the landscape as you do, what do you think America is going to look like in five years for a woman who wants to terminate a pregnancy? Well, here are a couple of things. Uh, something dramatic has changed since 1973, and that is that there is safe and effective medications that uh, people who get pregnant can take. Uh, uh, they're called misoprostol and mifepristone. There are websites, uh, including uh, one called Plan C. So Plan B is the 72-hour uh, morning after pill. Plan C is uh, uh, terminating a pregnancy safely with medications. Those medications are used throughout the country already sometimes with the supervision of medical providers, very often without. And we know from around the world and studies that they are safe. And so one hopes that there isn't a return to coat hangers and Clorox and other uh, very dangerous interventions. But we've had a coat hanger uh, attempt uh, with a, an abortion in Tennessee, Anna Yoka, uh, within the last few years. And she was arrested originally under a fetal assault law, which we were able to get uh, dismissed, to get uh, thrown out. Uh, but if the law changes, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, uh, we have to recognize that before Roe, 200,000 to a million women every year had abortions anyway. 
no matter what happens in the Supreme Court, people want to control their bodies and their lives and do what they have to do for their health and the health of their families and their future lives. So whatever happens, uh, even in the worst case scenario, what we can count on is what is in effect mass civil disobedience. Because all of the people who get abortions, including the many who get into that abortion clinic and announce they are against abortion, but they're having one anyway, are going to have to face what life looks like when they cannot get health care they need. You know, half the people listening to this, uh, everybody listening to this radio show knows somebody who's been pregnant. We wouldn't be here but for the people who got pregnant and gave birth to us. And yet their healthcare is somehow thought of as extra or special or separate. It's reproductive health. We need to change that. We need to make it about human health and ensure that everybody has all the healthcare they need, regardless of what kind of body they have, whether or not they can get pregnant or get somebody pregnant. And that means that we're gonna have to figure out as through who we elect, uh, through who we elect at the national level, at the state level, in our courts and, in our pro and at the level of prosecutors, how we are going to win back and assure the right to human health that has to include the people who get pregnant. Okay, well, uh, Lynn Paltrow, I wanna thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. We're continuing our discussion about the impact of the confirmation this week of Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, which shifts the balance of the U.S. Supreme Court, making it the most conservative court in nearly a century. Our next guest is Gita Schwartz, a senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York. She works on racial justice, immigrant rights, and government misconduct and transparency. Gita Schwartz, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Good morning, David. So you have had cases that have landed before the Supreme Court. Um, talk about what difference is it going to make in the kind of cases that you've worked on over the years, constitutional rights cases, that the, there is now a six to three conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, well, this, you know, the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, typically when we've had wins in federal court on constitutional issues, they tend to be wins from the more what's referred to as the more liberal or moderate wing of the Supreme Court. So, uh, and, and, and the rest of the federal bench. So the turn in the Trump administration in the federal judiciary is very meaningful for us. It, it may mean that some of our cases have a lot more trouble um, getting success. And among them, among the more crucial ones, especially that have come up during the Trump administration, are immigrants' rights cases. And uh, we do a whole range of cases that have come before the Supreme Court, including uh, habeas cases for Guantanamo, uh, people detained at Guantanamo, uh, prisoners' rights cases, and uh, and cases involving uh, immigrants' rights and discrimination. And those are the cases that uh, we fear uh, may have quite a bit more trouble uh, now that the justices have turned to a six to three majority 
but also because the federal judiciary as a whole has experienced this enormous uh, amplification of conservative voices because the Trump administration has appointed, I believe, 220 uh, judges uh, just in the last three and a half years. And that's made a very big difference at the lower levels of decision-making as well. As somebody who spends their life uh, seeking redress from the courts, many of the cases that you and your organization win are five to four decisions. And it looks like that door is being closed. What do you feel as you continue your work, knowing that the courts may no longer be a place where you can right the wrongs that you see? It's important to keep in mind that it's been very rare that the courts have been the place to right the wrongs. Uh, Certainly litigation on its own has almost never made a dent in civil liberties, in public welfare, without the support uh, and leadership of mass movements who are out in front and, and sort of making a sea change in the culture that really pressures courts uh, to respond. So, you know, we at CCR don't come from a place where litigation all on its own is going to be what's making change. Right now, a lot of what we do is trying to stop certain kinds of changes uh, from taking place in our laws. And litigation is just one of the tools that we use to support movements who are you know, trying to make a more just society. So on the one hand, you know, we, the, the, while it is really devastating uh, that so many of our, the hard won rights that um, have been fought by racial justice activists, by LGBTQ activists, uh, by, um, uh, by, people who are fighting for healthcare, on, on the one hand, even though that those things look like they are in grave, grave danger, it's also true that, that they've always been pretty precarious and the courts haven't always been the answer. Part of what we are trying to recognize is that we have to keep those things in mind. Um, that said, of course, it's really concerning that there is now what looks like a pretty strong majority on the court for um, really limiting the power of Congress to pass certain kinds of laws like the Affordable Care Act. Uh, It does look uh, really concerning that um, voting rights are really hanging by a very precarious thread in the current uh, makeup of the Supreme Court. And it is very terrifying for uh, for so-called minority rights, LGBTQ rights, racial justice, that the court has been using uh, sort of religious exceptions to get around many protections that people have, have won both through litigation and through mass movement, mass organizing. Is there... An issue, knowing as uh, as you do, kind of what is in the short term pipeline that the the court Supreme Court will be seeing soon. Is there one issue that kind of rises to the top of your concerns? 
I don't want to single out one among the the very many. You know, we're uh, the, the Affordable Care Act and Congress's power to legislate uh, is, is really very terrifying. Um, Amy Coney Barrett has some concerning dissents on, on the ability of states to pass gun control laws that are, that are very, very concerning. For our current immediate purposes, the really astonishing campaign that the Trump administration has waged against immigrants by using executive power um, is of grave, grave immediate concern. And many of those cases are going to be at the Supreme Court. Uh, the Trump administration has sort of used an in an unprecedented way has used a provision of the Immigration Nationality Act that allows him to make certain proclamations about entry of immigrants into the country. And he's used that to enact the Muslim ban, or the so-called Muslim ban, the travel ban on people from certain Muslim countries that went through several iterations and um, the Supreme Court in the end you know, decided that the injunction was uh, not appropriate and that the third version of the travel ban could go into effect. And since then, the Trump administration has used that provision to issue all manner of proclamations and used other parts of executive power to issue regulations that in effect shut down the asylum system uh, that uh, require um, people seeking asylum at the southern border to remain in Mexico while their cases are pending in truly terrible and concerning conditions. And all of those cases are making their way to the Supreme Court, you know, as well as the public charge case. It is very concerning when you have what looks to be something like a supermajority of justices who place great faith in executive power to change regimes passed by Congress that have been in effect for years, if not decades. That's something that I think uh, many, many advocates are really concerned about. The immigration cases and the, the, ban, the, the various iterations of the asylum bans um, are going to come before the Supreme Court, but they're not gonna be the only instance where Congress's will is challenged by executive action and where it looks like many of the judges are going to look very skeptically on Congress's ability to thwart what the president wants to do. Uh, I want to just turn in uh, before we go to a case that Center for Constitutional Rights has been involved in in Vermont, and that is a case involving migrant justice. And I guess there is some news on that today. Um, fill us in on what's happened. Uh, well, um, we, CCR, along with the ACLU of Vermont and <clears throat> National Immigration Law Center and National Center for Law and Economic Justice, um, work with Migrant Justice, a incredibly great, brave um, group of farm worker activists uh, who have experienced true harassment 
from Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And in 2018, we sued uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement as well as the Vermont DMV uh, for violations against migrant, constitutional violations against migrant justice and uh, several of their members. Uh, we settled the case against the DMV uh, earlier this year, and we are going to be uh, we're on the precipice of settling with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement for violations of the First Amendment when they targeted migrant justice and their members for arrest because of their activism in the community. And the case is really, um, it's part of another very, very concerning pattern that has been escalated during the Trump administration, which is targeting of activists for exer exercising their First Amendment rights. There's been a real uh, noticeable pattern since Trump took office of an increase in arrests, targeting, surveillance of people who are fighting for immigrants' rights. And that ranges from uh, uh, CBP, um, the, the Customs and Border Protection, sort of spying on activists who are crossing the border and sort of putting flags on their identities when they are trying to enter the U.S., to targeting activists like Ravi Ragbir, who's the head of a new sanctuary coalition and immigrants' rights organization in New York City, or his activism on behalf of immigrants' rights communities. There's, so the migrant justice case is really not this anomalous thing where a few agents within uh, the ICE office in Vermont decided to place an informant in migrant justice's offices and uh, then follow people from migrant justice meetings and arrest them for immigration violations. It's really part of an ICE-wide, government-wide attempt to squelch activism, squelch First Amendment expression, squelch First Amendment association, uh, and really make people afraid to fight the administration on, on immigrants' rights issues. So it's a real important case. We're very, very happy uh, that by settling with us, they clearly don't want to go to court uh, on the case, and they, they, they've sort of acknowledged um, that they owe our clients compensation for what they've done. Okay, well, uh, I, Gita Schwartz, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you very much for having me, David. It was a great talk. Gita Schwartz is a senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York. We turn now to the impact of the new Supreme Court majority on Vermont. We're joined by James Lyle, executive director of the Vermont American Civil Liberties Union. Full disclosure, I am a board member of the Vermont ACLU. Uh, James Duff Lyle, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Hi, David. It's nice to be here. So we've been having this conversation with a variety of legal experts talking about reproductive rights, the, the implications of the change in the Supreme Court. So we're talking about reproductive rights, uh, talking about just general constitutional rights. Um, I wanted to bring this to the Vermont uh, level and what is your response to the confirmation of a new Supreme Court justice that shifts the balance of the court uh, to a 6-3 conservative majority? How are Vermonters, how is that going to affect Vermonters? 
Um, well, you know, it's going to affect Vermonters in many ways the same way it's going to affect people all across the country. I mean, for anybody who cares about basic notions of fairness and justice and equality, um, and, you know, that, that, that I, there are people in Vermont, just as in other parts of the country, who are really concerned about the implications of uh, Justice Barrett's confirmation um, for a whole host of civil rights and civil liberties issues. Um, I mean, and, and we're not going to have to wait particularly long to find out. Um, there is, you know, has been uh, covered extensively. There, there are going to be elections and voting rights disputes going to the Supreme Court. Um, there already are. Um, they're, they're going to be ruling in short order on the Affordable Care Act. Um, and there's actually um, an ACLU case that will be argued, I believe, the day after the election. Um, uh, that will address whether um, government contractors can essentially discriminate um, uh, against LGBTQ people um, in the provision of government-funded services. So another case in which uh, discrimination under the guise of um, religious liberty is going to be uh, in front of the court. And there are obvious concerns that um, the court will go uh, the wrong way uh, in that case and in other cases where, um, you know, we have another justice who, you know, self-described acolyte of Antonin Scalia, um, a proponent of this so-called <laughs> legal doctrine of originalism, um, which posits that, you know, we have to interpret laws the way that 55 white men would have 230 years ago, which is preposterous. And as I think Ed Markey remarked uh, recently is that, you know, originalism is a fancy word for discrimination. Um, and that's exactly right. Uh, and so now we have another justice who subscribes to this bogus judicial philosophy. Um, and so there's real concern and, and it, it will impact Vermonters just as it will impact people across the country. I want to ask specifically about, um, in Vermont, the legislature has passed the first part of a process of enacting a constitutional amendment that will protect uh, women's reproductive rights. Can you just explain what has been passed and how a Supreme Court that perhaps overturned Roe v. Wade, which is of course a front burner issue as we look at what this new majority could do. So if Roe v. Wade is overturned nationally, where does that leave Vermonters if we pass this constitutional amendment? Yeah, so, I mean, in addition to the cases that I, that I mentioned that are coming up, we're not gonna have to wait a whole lot longer for other disputes. Um, and the implications for reproductive liberty are obvious. Um, I mean, I think during her confirmation hearings, um, uh, so-called uh, Justice Barrett, now, Justice Barrett it indicated that Roe was essentially not well settled because it was in such uh, it was so disputed. Um, so, you know, the fate of, of Roe v. Wade and um, and reproductive liberty generally is very much under threat. It's it's already been under threat. I mean, the reality is, um, even though abortion is legal, um, states have passed restrictions um, that, that effectively limit the right to reproductive health care for millions of people. Um, and that's been happening for a long time. But, you know, this latest development at the Supreme Court uh, just underscores the urgency of efforts in Vermont to safeguard those protections, safeguard those freedoms. Um, and so Vermont has done a couple of things in that regard. Uh, last year, uh, the state passed 
uh, H57 uh, to uh, enshrine in statute the right to reproductive health care. Um, but looking ahead to the possibility of a Supreme Court that is not um, going to respect religious liberty, um, uh, the ACLU, our partners at Planned Parenthood, uh, numerous legislative uh, leaders and people across the state have been working to advance a constitutional amendment that would enshrine in Vermont's constitution um, similar reproductive rights um, as fundamental um, and hopefully to um, safeguard them against further erosion by the Supreme Court. So the Prop 5 uh, is the constitutional amendment that passed in, in the last biennium it needs to pass in the next biennium before it can go to voters in 2022. Um, but we, and again, our, our allies will be championing that and supporting that moving forward. And we look forward to um, getting it in front of voters in 2022. So if, if Roe v. Wade is struck down and the way it's been described uh, by many is that, you know, the implications of this nationally is it's it's essentially going to become a state-by-state -state issue whether women have the right to choose in some form. Will, the, will this new constitutional amendment in Vermont be able to withstand uh, that kind of a test uh, of it being struck down nationally? Um, well, if the Supreme Court um, uh, essentially says there's no um, fundamental right to an abortion. States can essentially enact um, restrictions, which again, they're already doing, right? I mean, states are already criminalizing behavior during pregnancy. Um, there have been numerous attempts to um, charge and convict women for self-inducing abortion. So, I mean, the, the list of uh, restrictions is already very long. The Supreme Court could potentially open the floodgates to limitless restrictions. Um, and so if Vermont, um, in addition to the statute that now prevents future Vermont state governments from imposing similar restrictions, if Vermont can also essentially do the same in its state constitution, that would restrict future state legislatures from, from doing the kinds of things that we've seen in states across the country. Now, that currently isn't um, uh, likely to happen. There's strong support for reproductive freedom in this state, including in the state legislature. We're very fortunate for that and, and grateful for that. But um, we, th that could change over time. And it's also just important that Vermont send a message that we we value and and believe in reproductive autonomy and reproductive freedom. And we're not going to stand for these attacks. These are fundamental freedoms, the ability to control one's uh, future one's body uh, is fundamental. And, and so I think this effort and these efforts over the past several years have, have sent a really strong message that Vermonters um, are, are not going to stand for further restrictions on reproductive rights. Is there an issue that uh, for you as a civil libertarian um, kind of stands, uh, is something you're most worried about? Well, um, I mean, I think it, it's really hard to pick one thing. I, I mean, we have a far-right extreme uh, majority uh, on the Supreme Court. Um, just the shift from Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Amy Barrett alone constitutes one of the biggest ideological shifts um, in, in a very long time. Um, and it's 
at no point in our lifetimes has the Supreme Court been so far out of step from where most of the country is. Um, and so, you know, the, certainly concerned about every issue under the sun with regards to civil rights and civil liberties. The, I, I, I think there's just a long list of things that are, um, that are threatened by this, but it's also the fact that the Supreme Court itself, that the legitimacy of the federal judiciary has been so badly damaged, not just by these confirmation hearings, but really by the court packing of Mitch McConnell and uh, Senate Republicans over the last four years has badly damaged the legitimacy of the judiciary. And that is, you know, sort of a meta concern that, that you know, goes along with all of the individual issues that are threatened by this particular Supreme Court and, and these particular justices. Do you have an opinion on this question of expanding the Supreme Court? Um, you know, again, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for the efforts of Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans to, um, to, to pack the judiciary with far-right extremists to an extent that we just have not seen before and, and to politicize the courts in the process to such an extent that it seems like something really needs to be done. Now, whether that's, uh, there, there've been a range of proposals from, um, implementing term limits, you know, whether nine people should have lifetime appointments to, to decide fundamental rights for hundreds of millions of people, I, I think is a legitimate question. Um, there's certainly nothing in the U.S. Constitution that requires the judiciary or the Supreme Court be a certain size. Um, there is precedent for it. I believe, um, you know, there's been talk of, at a minimum, setting up a commission to look at it. And I, you know, I actually think that is a good idea because of the fact that the entire process has become so politicized and the courts have been so um, engineered uh, over the past four years. Um, when their legitimacy um, is, is then called into question, that's not good for democracy, that's not good for the judiciary, it's really not good for any of us. And so these are conversations that we need to be having and questions that need to be investigated. Uh, and, and I expect they will be, um, and, and I think, um, if and when the Supreme Court starts issuing decisions that are, again, so far out of line with what the vast majority of Americans would expect or want, I think, you know, the need for that will become even more apparent. Uh, well, James Duff-Lyle, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. That was James Lyle, Executive Director of the Vermont ACLU, and again, a disclosure, I'm a board member of the Vermont ACLU. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.